As you're turning to Ephesians chapter 1, I'll remind us a few things that we discussed before by way of direction. When we started this series, the first message in the series, God's passion for His own glory, was the reminder that we are created for His glory. And by the way, the first verse of the hymn that we just sang refers to that very thing, that even the flower was created by God for His own glory. And He owns it all, uh, the cattle on a thousand hills, it's all His. But if He created the sparrow and the flower and the grass of the field, and He cares for them, we're reminded in Scripture how much more does He care for us. And the very gem of His creation was the creation of man, the special creation of a real man named Adam and a real woman named Eve. It's so fortunate that we have to make such a statement in the pulpit today. That this is, is not some mythical approach to Scripture, that Adam and Eve were not bad examples given to us in Scripture that weren't real people. They were real man and woman. And man being created in the image of God, we were reminded, first and foremost, uh, using the children's catechism as sort of a background, that we are created for the glory of God. And because of that, we are to glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. So we saw, first of all, that we are created for God's glory. And I would remind us in that, as we will remind ourselves throughout these messages, that it's not about us. Just as we were not physically created for our own selves, we were created for Him. The same can be said when we consider being saved for His glory. So I preached this to uh, at youth camp this summer. I reminded the, the young people that it's not about you. Your salvation, your creation, even your good works are not about you. It's about Him. And so as we continue through these messages, I would encourage us in those things. So first of all, we saw that we created for His glory. And that we are to glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. The second thing that we noted was, why don't we then have a passion for the glory of God? And the second verse of the hymn that we just sang spells that out beautifully. We rebelled against the glory of God. We do think that it's about us, apart from Christ. And we live for ourselves, our own self-centeredness, and everything that's of God, we despise and try to live according to our own selves. And ultimately, that very sin in our lives is what Paul calls falling short of what? The glory of God. So the fact that we're created for His glory and the fact that we rebel for, against that glory should cause us to stop and think, am I hopeless? And the answer is no. The answer is no. That the same God who spoke the world and the universe into creation, the same power of God that formed man from the dust of the ground, is the same God who Paul calls the power of the gospel. It's the same God who saves a man. Raises a dead man to life spiritually. Causes a hard heart to go soft and the heart of flesh is replaced. And does all that we need in that same power to regenerate us. Well, as we look together this, more, uh, this afternoon at Ephesians chapter 1, I preached this here before. I'll probably preach it again. It's a text that you're familiar with. I'll remind you it's one long sentence in the Greek. In other words, Paul has one thought on his mind when he pens these words, again by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And that is this truth that we are saved for God's glory. 
I'll begin reading in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. We sang about that in the words of the hymn a few moments ago, that according to His purposes all things will come to pass. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in Him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. My goal this afternoon is not to do a full exposition of this text. I've preached this text before in three separate sermons. I've also made an effort to preach the text in one sermon. But my hope today is, is to just really, for lack of a better way of putting it, do a running commentary, a devotional approach, a meditative approach to, to some of the key words that we find in these verses. And the reason I want to take this approach, I told Louis a moment ago, is, is really it's, it's a post-meditation concerning the Lord's table. In other words, this is something that that we should always have on our minds concerning uh, communion with God and fellowship with God, how it all comes about. And so I want to take just these few minutes this afternoon to, to work through what is the clear teaching here in this text is the working of the Trinity in our salvation. Now, if you want a much fuller treatment of this, you're invited to come to our Deep South Founders Conference in Jackson, Mississippi, January 13th, 14th, and 15th where three men will be preaching on the work of the Father in salvation, the work of the Son in salvation, and the work of the Spirit in salvation. And I don't know that they'll particularly be using this text, but um, there's a free advertisement for that. When I preached this at youth camp, the reason I wanted to revisit it here is I had two ladies, adults. Again, I said I was preaching to youth, but I had two adults that came up to me afterwards now, I preached a lot that morning because I preached this entire sermon, created for God's glory, saved for God's glory, and, and served for God's glory, all in one sermon. It was about an hour long, plus, probably. And it came up to me afterwards, and I admitted I can't spend a lot of time in the Ephesians text. I know you've heard it proclaimed in your churches, because I know the churches that we have that attend. They have great, godly men in pulpits that I can assure you would have, at some point along the way, done an exposition of, of, of Ephesians chapter 1. These two ladies came up to me afterwards and they said, we've never heard what you just said. Now, I know where these ladies go to church. And I know that that pastor has preached these things more than once. 
As a matter of fact, if I know him, he'd probably spend weeks in this one text. But they'd never heard the simplicity of the truth that right here in one concise place we see the work of the Trinity in our salvation. And that's what they were struck by. What struck me was the truth that I knew that had been proclaimed in their church before because I'd actually listened to one of the sermons that their pastor preached on the text before in preparation for my own. But it reminded me that, you know, on any given Sunday, we've got one shot. I've got one shot to proclaim it, and you've got one shot to hear it. And sometimes, even though it's proclaimed with great clarity in the pulpit, people present may not have spiritual ears to hear. Or they may not have been present physically on that particular day, or they may have been serving somewhere else in the church. That's why we record our sermons, and we give you an opportunity to listen afterwards if you're not able to attend. But there is a such thing as expository listening uh, that we discuss right alongside expository preaching. Well, the reason I wanted to approach it again for us is, yes, I've preached it here before. I hope that you've heard, and I hope that this is a devotion for you. Just a meditative thought on some of these wonderful, wonderful truths that we see laid out for us. Paul begins this text with blessing. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And before he really dives into the doctrine of salvation, he praises the God of our salvation. This verse, in many times and in many ways, should be read as a Christian eulogy. That's really what this is. Some form of the Greek eulogia. I'll get it there. <laughs> I was hitting the emphasis on the wrong syllable. Some form of the Greek word is found three times in the verse. We just sang about it. And here in this first verse, we see blessed, has blessed, and blessing. And from that Greek word, we get our word eulogy, which is easier to say than the Greek. Uh, And we typically think of eulogy as saying good words about a person. Typically, we're familiar with a eulogy, whether it's out of place or not, being spoken at a funeral. Well, this certainly is not a funeral, but it is good words. Paul burst into praise concerning the work of our salvation. But before he does that, he says these things about God. And we see first the blessed one himself. God the Father. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now this may sound simple to us, but I would remind us that true worship begins with blessing the Father. Our prayer life should begin with blessing the Father. When we come together corporately to worship together, it should begin with the blessings of God our Father. Jesus taught His disciples to pray how? Our Father. Who art in heaven. And all that follows from that. And so Paul begins this burst of praise rightly placed with God. God the Father. The blessed one himself. Second, notice the blesser. Also God the Father. He says, who has blessed us. Now, you've heard me say this before. We, we live in a day where people are more than willing to accept the blessings and kind of forget the blesser. Receive the gift and forget the giver. Paul doesn't do that. He goes straight to God, blessing God, and he also says, notice 
who has blessed us. Dear friends, we have a God who wants what is best for His people, for His own glory. James wrote, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. That is a right place understanding of blessing. Now, before I move on, as I mentioned in my sermon this morning, we've got to be careful that we don't mistake blessings. So often in our culture, we equate material things with spiritual blessings. And it might be, but we have no guarantee of that. As a matter of fact, some who are, have many things materially, it's not a blessing. And so we need to be careful, as I mentioned this morning, that we don't give this idea that those that don't have as much in other parts of the world who are quite content, are they not blessed? Or what about in our sufferings? Does the Word of God not even call our sufferings a blessing from God? And so, Paul gives praise to the one who has blessed us. And then third, the blessing themselves, every spiritual blessing. And again, we often define that temporarily by our homes or our cars or our finances, our health, whatever it might be. But here the emphasis is on that which is spiritual. Designates a type of blessing and not simply the source itself. In other words, there's a spiritual aspect to this. Now it's important, I think, that we see this threefold blessing, eulogy, because it introduces Paul's thought on salvation. Blessed is He. Blessed is He who has bestowed these blessings upon us in Christ, he says. Well, very quickly, we'll note these works of then the Godhead. First, the work of the Father we find in verses 4 through 6. And again, this won't be an inept uh, exposition, but we see very clearly out of the gate the truth that the Father, God the Father, has elected or chosen a people for Himself. It's the doctrine of election. And it's interesting to me, as I've done this journey in Reformed theology and understood at least some of what it means to be the elect of God, if we were to face it, we don't know all there is to know about that. How God in His own foreknowledge, God in His own wisdom, God according to His own plan, chooses a people for Himself before the foundation of the world. But folks, I'm content with it. It's God's prerogative. God is God. And He can do as He pleases and will accomplish His most holy will. And yet, when we talk about this doctrine of election, which, by the way, is a spiritual blessing, no doubt, how He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, usually the argument is not from a pagan concerning this. Usually those that argue against such things are in the church. Fellow believers. Usually the conversation on election quickly changes to, well, what about man's free will? Are we just robots? Or what about um, babies? Where does that leave the unborn or those that die young? Or if God chooses some, what about the rest? And that statement, I think, is really the contention with some people. Because you need to understand that 
I hope that the argument would not be against election. I mean, often people will say, well, I just don't believe in election. Well, I hope what they mean by that is, is they don't understand what the Bible teaches about election. Because right here in this verse, we see it, <laughs> elections in the Bible. And to say you don't believe in election, then, would be to say you don't believe God's Word. And that's not what they mean. I, I really don't know that I've met any true professing believer that may not have a right understanding of all there is to know that would say, I don't believe the Bible. So then when we get the context into the right discussion, and remind them that every single place that Paul discusses election, it is never to be contentious. It's always to remind people of the blessing they have in God as their Father. It's always there for encouragement. It's always there in the midst of persecution. When you remind them of that, then it really may come down to they don't understand, well, what about the rest? That flip side of what we call election is called reprobation. And so then the discussion moves more toward, well, then what does God do with those he doesn't choose? Again, that's a different sermon for a different time, but it's an honest question that they should have. But this doctrine of election in the church is often very difficult. But I would remind us, it's difficult from our perspective. Not God's. Not God's. And we see in our text that regardless of one's view concerning election, you must admit three things. It is in Scripture. It is divine. He chose us. Right? Now, let me interject something here. That does not mean that we don't choose God. You see, that's where the whole argument with free will breaks down to me. Yes, God must do the work. He must choose us. He must love us before we would ever love Him. But folks, repentance involves turning from your sin and turning to Christ. So yes, there is a choosing that takes place. There is a choice to follow God. But that can never happen apart from God's intervention and doing a work in us first. And so, election is in Scripture. Election is divine. He chose us. And election is from eternity past. Before the foundation of the world. Paul said in Romans 9, Before Jacob and Esau had done either good or evil, God chose Jacob. Loved Jacob. And what? Hated Esau. Now, people want to focus on the hated Esau part. It's there. Dear friends, the fact that he loved Jacob before he'd done anything good or evil. The fact that he would love any person who, as we saw before, has nothing in their heart but outright rebellion against him. You see, the doctrine of election should be one that causes us to rejoice, not question. The fact that he chose me. Folks, listen, I knew, Todd, I knew Todd Wilson long before you did. I know how I used to be. And by the way, I didn't even know it in its fullness. How, how, how despicable my actions were to God. He saved me. It should cause us to rejoice. But Paul doesn't stop there in Ephesians. There is a reason that God chose a people for himself before the foundation of the world. And that is that we would be what? Holy and blameless. 
The purpose of election as it relates to man is to be holy and blameless before him. We'll see God's ultimate purpose in election is himself. The praise of his glory and grace. But we also see the purpose for man. And there are two things of great importance here. The elect are to be holy and blameless. Paul uses two words that describe basically the same thing from different vantage points. Both words refer to the salvation of the elect. Past, present, and future. In other words, there is the truth that the moment we come to faith in Christ, receive Him as our Lord and Savior, take His righteousness upon ourselves, and our sins are put onto Him, that we are fully justified. That from God's perspective, we are already holy and blameless in Christ. We're not going to get any more holy legally. We're not going to get any more blameless legally. Christ paid for it. But the present aspect, the reality is, as we saw this morning, we still sin. We still have that nature. We still at times have that bent. Even though we have the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit with us at all times, at present we know that we're not fully, totally holy and blameless. But we are to be striving towards that. The command to be holy for I am holy doesn't come with the, oh, well, we can't be, so we'll just set it over here. That is our goal. And if your goal is anything other than striving for holiness, striving to be morally blameless before God, then, dear friends, you need to check your salvation at the door. But then there's the future aspect, where we will be. Not just from God's perspective, legally, but we will actually be holy and blameless. And dear friends, we can't begin to fathom what that's going to be like. Absolutely no presence of sin. No effects of sin. No more anything that has anything to do. We don't know what that looks like. On our best day, we are so far from that. On our best day of worship, when we're as close to Christ as we can be, we can't begin to understand what it's going to be like to be fully holy and blameless. And that God's preordained purpose is to bring all of this back together. Everything that's been affected by sin, man and all of creation. Even creation groans for this day. When the new heavens and new earth, when the presence and consequence of sin is gone. And so, first, the elect are to be holy and blameless. But second, the elect are to be holy and blameless before Him. And this is a phrase that we can maybe slide past and not see the significance. But it means that we are in God's presence. You know, as, as I was looking over this again today, it struck me how this morning I preached on the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. The very power of the Spirit in us. And then here, we're reminded that we are in God's presence presence. You can't escape God. If you're a believer, He's in you. He's outside of you. He's everywhere you are. He knows every thought and intent of the heart. And that's good for us. 
Because God will do what He needs to do to make His children right. So that means that we are in God's presence. We are before Him. That we appear before Him. It's another way of saying, in biblical terminology, that we are in communion with God. And dear friends, that can never, ever change in the eternity of the world. Now let me clarify something. Our sin does affect our present daily communion with Christ. Our union with Christ can never be broken. It's assured to yesterday, today, and forever. But our sin does affect our communion, our fellowship, our walk. First John covers that. And yet, we're reminded here that the purpose in God's choosing us is to make us perfect. So that we are always in perfect communion with Him. And so, before Him, as used by Paul, means that our calling and election is that we may walk with God. Not only that we may enter into a conscious fellowship with Him, but that we may abide in Him. That we may fellowship with Him. Or, as John does put it, walk in the light of God. And so, God's election of a people to Himself is so that they would have a passion for His glory. A second term that we see in the work of the Father, is the word adoption. And we spent a lot of time on this in, in the past. We did a series on it, and then Mike has, has preached a, a recent message on what it means to be the child of God or children of God. We'll be coming back to it again in Galatians on what this means. I would just remind us uh, here that our adoption also is a legal term that has to do with our standing before God. Justification is a term that's used alongside adoption. If you're justified, you are adopted. If you're adopted, you've been justified. They, they work together. You can't have one without having the other. And we know that in justification, the great work of imputation has taken place. Our sins were put on Christ and His righteousness was put on us. There's great debate today and I won't spend a lot of time here. We'll come back to it when, in dealing justification in Galatians. But Steve and, and Matt were just at ETS and reminded me that N.T. Wright was one of the keynote speakers. And if you're familiar with N.T. Wright at all, you'll know that he is an advocate of what's known as the new perspective on Paul. In other words, we, we misread Paul in the church today and we've got it all wrong. Um, N.T. Wright is often misunderstood. And I could tell you as a preacher, as a pastor... Uh, I know in your own life you could tell me the same, that there's no worse feeling than being misunderstood about what you're really trying to say. And N.T. Wright, I think, made it plain at ETS that he's been misinterpreted, misunderstood, misquoted, number of things in print. I do believe that N.T. Wright's a godly man. And he has backed off some of the way that he said things, but I think at the end of the day, he's not a new perspective guy in the vein of an E.P. Sanders or the, those, those men that preceded him. But Wright's issue, and it is a huge issue when it relates to justification, is he denies imputation. Dear friends, if you do not have imputation, you do not have justification. It's, it's just that simple. And so we'll be revisiting that uh, along the way. That was for free because it was new and I was reminded of it over the past days. But our adoption is alongside this great truth that we've been declared righteous by God, the judge. But he didn't just declare us righteous. 
our adoption, he goes a step further. You've heard me say before, the judge becomes our father. He's not like an earthly judge who may pronounce a man not guilty. One of the shadiest of characters may not be guilty on that. But would that same judge, earthly judge, even though he declared a man not guilty, would he be willing to take that man into his home? And not only into his home, but call him his own? And not only call him his own, but give him all of the inheritance that he gave his perfect son? what God did. Yes, legally before Him, we're declared not guilty in Christ. His righteousness is put on us that can never change. But then He says, He's my son. He's my child. He's mine. And dear friends, all of the promises of Scripture that are ours as His children are sure today as they will be tomorrow. As a child of God. We spurned Him. We were God-haters. We were outright enemies of God. Not too long ago for most of us in our lives. And yet God saves us and calls us His child. And again, Ephesians 1.6 says all of this is to the praise of the glory of His grace. Do we get the benefit? Absolutely. But it's for God's glory. Then secondly, in verses 7 through 12, we won't deal with all of these, but we see the work of the Son. The first work we see there is the work of redemption. Redemption means to buy back that which has been sold. And the Bible is clear. We've been seeing this in Galatians. We were under law. We were under sin. We had literally been sold under sin and were in bondage and power and captivity to the evil one who the Bible says is your father if you've not been redeemed. Christ purposes as one of the blessings of salvation to buy us back, to redeem us. And what was the price tag that Paul says was for our redemption? What did it cost for us to be redeemed? What did it cost for us to be reconciled to God? We who were his enemies and he ours. Well, that cost him his blood, his life, which he willingly gave for us. Paul says it was through his blood that we've been redeemed in verse 7. 1 Peter 1, 15-19, we read, Knowing that you were redeemed not with corruptible things, with silver or gold, but he says in verse 19, with the precious blood. Precious blood. Blood. We started today by saying, folks, it's not about you. The next time you want to make your salvation about you, remember His precious blood. How many ounces of blood have you given for anybody? And yet He willingly gave Himself. As of a lamb without blemish, without spot, even the blood of Christ. You see, when we speak of God or Christ giving Himself redemptively through His blood, we think first of Him being our substitute. He voluntarily died in our place. We should have been on the cross. 
We should have paid that penalty. We deserve the judgment. We deserve the wrath. And yet Jesus stepped in and said, Father, all that you have given to me, all that you have given to me, I will give myself for them. Our substitute. He died voluntarily in our place. And that death was a sacrifice. It was a death of atonement. It had a working purpose behind it. When He died as our sacrifice, He paid the penalty for sin. It was satisfied. And it can never be revisited. All of our sins were put upon Christ on the cross. All of our sins were perfectly atoned for. There's nothing that we could ever do to change that. What can separate us, Paul asked. What can separate us? And then his death, through his blood, was a satisfaction. Substitute, sacrifice, satisfaction. What did it satisfy? The wrath of God. Again, that wrath that should have been poured out upon us. So the next time we think of redemption through his blood, think of the preciousness of his blood. Think of the giving of his life. Think of the sacrifice that did satisfy the penalty and the guilt. What we deserved along with the wrath. One writer said, for we owed a debt we could not pay. While on the cross, our Lord's blood did flow. He paid our debts debts on the hill that day. Romans 5, 8. Paul wrote, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Again, this Pauline language, I died with Christ. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That means you, us. The day he died, he died for Susie and Mike and Linda and Louie and Catherine and every person here that knows him savingly. I'm trusting you, dude. He died that day. The next term we see, not just redemption, but the forgiveness of our trespasses. The redeemed have complete and total forgiveness of their sins. All sins ever committed, past, present, and future. 1 John 2.12, John said, I'm writing to you little children. Little children. There you have it. Because your sins have been forgiven you for His name's sake. Again, in preaching this before, we mentioned the truth that His name and His glory are synonymous. You see them side by side often in Scripture. He said, I'll no longer allow my glory to be profaned. He said the same thing about His name. And here John reminds us that we've been forgiven for His name's sake. It's not about you. It's for Him. Ephesians 4.32 Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. Dear friends, if you've experienced the forgiveness of Christ for you, you cannot be anything other than forgiving toward others who know Him. Colossians 2.13 When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. 
The Scriptures replete over and over and over again with this truth that His blood leads to forgiveness of our trespasses and our sins. However, you may be thinking, well then, if all of this is true, there's nothing I could ever do that would separate me from the love of God if every sin, past, present, future, has been atoned for 2,000 years ago at the cross, then it doesn't matter what I do, I can live however I want to. And by the way, that would be a logical, reasonable approach. However, we must be reminded that the Christian is to continue with a repentant attitude, an attitude of, re, of, of forgiveness throughout his life. 1 John 1, 9, John again was writing to those who were already believers. He said, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. That means that there's this indwelling attitude that comes with the Spirit of God. That as we are walking in the light, as we are walking in fellowship with Him, we are cognizant of how our sin offends a holy God. And we confess. Now again, when we preach in 1 John, all of this is more for us. This doesn't do anything for God. Do you think our repentance does anything for God? Our confession does anything? No, this is for us to realize the necessity of His goodness and His mercy and His grace and how we offend Him when we sin. And so, if the believer is forgiven once for all, why do we need to continue to repent? Why do we need to continue to ask His forgiveness? Well, John MacArthur wrote, because we continue to sin, we need the continued forgiveness of cleansing. We do not need the continued forgiveness of redemption. There's a justifying side of redemption as well as a sanctifying side in redemption. I believe that's true. So in this blessed redemption, Christ has taken away both the sin as well as the guilt associated with that sin. The first of those is known as expiation. He took our sins and the guilt associated with the sins away and imputation that we've already discussed. His righteousness was put on us and so that he could be our propitiation, satisfying God's wrath. Well, this redemption and its resulting forgiveness, again, Paul reminds us, are according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. We're back to grace. It's all about grace. God giving us what we do not deserve. And in this case, that would be redemption and the full forgiveness associated with it. That's how Paul describes God's gift of redemption, according to the riches of His grace. Very quickly, the third person of the Trinity, the work of the Spirit, in verses 13 and 14. And the first concept, because it's not spelled out, written explicitly, is the work of regeneration. Paul says in him, verse 13, you also, when you heard the truth or the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him. The reason I say that this sets forth the doctrine of regeneration is when we look at that verse alongside Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, which plainly states that we are dead in our trespasses and sins that our ears are deafened and that our eyes are blinded and that our minds are shut up to even be able to consider the things of God. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. We cannot hear. We cannot listen. We cannot believe. 
When we consider these verses alongside that, we see that something must happen to a person before. The dead man must be given life before they're able to listen and believe. You remember what Jesus told Nicodemus, that a man could not see the kingdom of God. For example, you cannot have salvation. You cannot be part of the kingdom of God unless he was what? Born again. Jesus goes on to explain that that new birth was a work of the Holy Spirit. And that's that new birth or regeneration that lies under what Paul is saying in these verses. So why must we be born again? Well, again, man is dead in his trespasses and sins. And that death is a spiritual death. Eternal separation from God for all eternity under his divine wrath. And that is the way all men have been born on this earth. Save Jesus Christ, our Lord. The only hope a dead man has is through life in Christ. That being spiritual life. And that is what it means to be regenerate, born again, or quickened by the Spirit of God. Dead men can't hear. Dead men can't see. Dead men can't walk. Dead men are dead. They're totally incapable of any spiritual things. That is, until the Spirit enables them to hear. And what does He enable them to hear? The gospel, the word, and he enables them to believe. And so the question is, have you been born again? While it's true that all whom God has chosen before the foundation of the world will most certainly be born again. It is his purpose. It is his decree. It is his plan. It is unchangeable. It will most certainly come to pass. We've seen that in this text. But men are commanded everywhere to believe. Dear friends, God will not be blamed if you don't cry out to Him for your salvation. You will not stand before God in judgment and say, well, God, it was your fault. You didn't choose me before the foundation of the world. He's going to point one finger anthropomorphically. He's going to point and say, your single sin your single sin, your one sin, you deserve my wrath. And at that moment, you will know His holiness and His justice. If you've never trusted Christ, you will spend it knowing it forever and ever and ever in hell. I choose to believe that that's what hell, the greatest misery in hell is going to be is to know that now we have seen God and we're separated from Him for all eternity. Well, the second work, very quickly, we see is effectual call. It's by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit that one is enabled to hear. The emphasis in the text is on listening, hearing, believing. And theologians refer to this as uh, effectual calling. In this listening and believing, it is implied that something's spoken. Right? To hear something, something's got to be said for communication to take place. Something must be heard. Something must be received and believed. We see the same idea as we saw this morning in Romans ten seventeen. Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the 
Word of Christ. The Gospel is something that is proclaimed. It is the message of truth. The Gospel of your salvation, Paul says. And when one believes or trusts or puts his faith in Christ, from that very moment on, it will be in eternity in the kingdom of God. Then, seal and guarantee. We'll be picking up on some of these things again in Galatians later on. But Paul said, we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. First, Paul refers to the work of the Spirit as God's seal. And John Stott writes that this seal is a mark of ownership and authenticity. Cattle and even slaves were branded with a seal by their masters in order to indicate to whom they belonged. But such seals were external, while God's is in the heart. He puts His Spirit within His people in order to mark them. Now, it's interesting that Stott would be given toward paedo-baptism because they tend to equate the work of circumcision in the Old Testament as being synonymous with baptism in the New. We're going to be picking up on, on that theme as we work our way through the, the book of Galatians. But if that be true, to me, Scott just contradicted himself in what he says about this circumcision being internal of the heart. And by the way, while in the Old Testament, circumcision was given as the seal and the sign, it's never said of that that way in the New Testament. Here, Paul proclaims that the seal is what? The Holy Spirit. That circumcision of the heart that's taken place. And again, we'll pick up on that theme somewhat as we continue through Galatians and the place of circumcision. Paul also refers to the Holy Spirit as a guarantee, a surety or deposit, a pledge of our inheritance. In other words, the Holy Spirit is given to the believer to ensure him that his inheritance in Christ is safe forever. As Paul says, until we acquire possession of it. Or until God redeems his possession. This guarantee, again, is tied to redemption. If it is true that the purchase price paid in full by Christ on the cross at Calvary, if that be true, then our inheritance is sure in him. Or Christ has to die again. He has to come to forgive again and to offer himself again. So here we see this truth that there can be no surer or safer promise or guarantee. The believer is fully secure in Jesus Christ because Christ has finished his work of salvation. That and that alone is how the believer can have full assurance of salvation. To the praise, Paul says, of his glory. Now again, this is just a meditative work of, of, of thought on a lot of theological words. But I would simply close with this. Have you been saved for the glory of God? Again, as I've said, that doesn't mean that we don't receive those benefits. The very thought of an inheritance is our benefit. But dear friends, it's not about us. If it was ever about us, we're doomed. Because see, if before the foundation of the world, God did look down the quarters of time and see those who would be good enough, we're all dead. We're all dead. But here we see in this text the work that God 
the Trinitarian Godhead has accomplished. And so may, may that always and forever be our Amen when we consider the work of God's grace for our salvation. Let's pray.